0: And thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast. Episode 118, Betting It All. Last time, everyone involved with General Franco knew that he had made a mistake in not finishing off northeastern Catalonia when he had the chance. But the Cadillo had his own reasons, political ones, for calling off the offensive there. Instead, he was now focused on taking Valencia in the southeast and expanding his hold along the coast. But by late June 1938, even that had come to a halt, as the Republican commanders there had learned painful lessons from past battles and prepared a more layered defense, including the XYZ line along the heights. Still, Mussolini saved the day by offering Franco more men and equipment, as this seemed to be the end of the battle for Spain, and he, Mussolini, wanted due credit. But at this point, Franco's decision concerning Catalonia came back to haunt him. During the short time the French border had been reopened during the early summer, thousands of tons of supplies came across. Prime Minister Negrin used this and the results of a massive call-up that included 16-year-old boys and middle-aged men to prepare his own offensive. In one regard, hopefully, a push west across the Segre and Ebro rivers would take the pressure off of Valencia to the south. And secondly, Negrin hoped to capture land to strengthen his position when starting negotiations with Franco. Yet the nationalist leader had already made it clear there were never going to be any talks But this did not stop Negrin from his offensive, which started on July 25th. Quickly setting up several pontoon bridges that morning, enough troops crossed over to kill the nationalist sentries and capture not only 4,000 prisoners, but soon 800 square kilometers of nationalist territory to the west of the waterways. Franco, when he learned of this, howled with rage and had the attack in the south, halted so several divisions could be turned north. Yet his general in local command, General Yagüe, did not react so, for he remembered previous battles and the one glaring fault of the Republican officers, that they would not allow a general offensive to move forward unless all territory behind the main line was in their control. So Yagwe contacted Colonel Campos Guerreta, the commander of the breached line, and told him to continue to resist. Yagwe then contacted General Barron and his 13th Division, being held in reserve, and ordered it forward to Gandesa, the headquarters of the 50th Nationalist Division, the expected target of the Republican attack. If this area could be held, then Yagwe knew the Republicans would halt their offensive for him until it was taken. Barron force-marched his men in the July weather, losing some of them to the heat, but they reached Gandesa by the morning of July 26th. Between the Condor legions bombing the pontoon bridges and Franco ordering two upstream dams to be opened, the Republicans' ability to cross over the Ebro became irregular. As such, modesto in charge of this offensive, would not risk sending over any more of his few T-26 tanks. As things stood, only some 22 tanks were with the Republican troops. As for the infantry, they crossed when they could. This left a relatively small Republican force, some six divisions, to make for Gandesa, without air support as the German and Italian pilots had cleared the skies of them. On the third day of the attack, July 27th, Lieutenant General Juan Modesta ordered what forces were across the Ebro to attack the town of Gandesa, some 25 kilometers or 15 and a half miles west of the river. The town was along the crossroads to Catalonia and controlled the main road that ran north to south, parallel to the Ebro. Around the target town, the land was hilly, which would benefit the nationalist defenders. But if the heights could be taken, then those same hills would allow the Republicans to shell the town, hopefully, until it surrendered. The Republican Air Force had yet to make an appearance, but needs must for the infantry, as time and their supplies was running out. By July 30th, Modesto had what artillery had been able to cross the Ebro, begin to bombard Gandesa. It had taken longer than planned to reach the outskirts of the town, But the equivalent of six Republican divisions were also across now, and their job was to take the town, after its defenders were shell-shocked. But as this entire schedule had already been thrown off by the haphazard existence of the pontoon bridges, Modesto informed everyone that he would be taking direct control of the center army, making its way to Gandessa. As his relatively few tanks approached the town, the Condor Legion's 88 millimeter anti-aircraft guns made short work of the metal beasts. The Germans were under orders to employ the guns only if the enemy aircraft were not about, which was the case. Modesto considered the defenders softened up enough, so began to send in his infantry. Yet east of the town held a graveyard, and its wall offered the defenders something to hide behind. It was as far as the Republicans got. It didn't help that the Nationalist Air Force bombed and strafed Modesto supply lines and reinforcements. Again, the sky was theirs. But that was about to change. The next day, on July 31st, the Nationalist Air Force, along with the Germans and Italians, continued bombing raids on the enemy ground troops. They also targeted the stretcher-bearers, trying to remove the wounded. As for the Republican pilots, they finally came roaring in on the last day of July, and what resulted were the largest air battles of the entire war. Some 300 missions were flown that day alone, with the Nationalists finding their ability to bomb enemy troops thwarted. Of course, the trade-off was now that the Germans and Italians could directly engage their counterparts. For some weeks before this moment, Not only had the skies been theirs, but they had flown over the Ebro and taken out some 76 Republican aircraft while still on the ground. Now the skies were filled with machines, some of which, along with their human crews, fell to the ground. For the Condor Legion and the Italian Air Force, they finally had the chance to rid Franco of the majority of the Republican Air Force. As had become the common practice, the Republicans had achieved surprise, as the nationalists, most certainly Franco, always underestimated them. But what was also common was that the Republican troops, along with the international brigades, mostly due to their Soviet advisers and officers, became confused and muddled when the enemy stiffened their backs or sent in reinforcements. The Soviets would then simply throw men in, hoping their numbers would carry the day. But with the enemy's air power and artillery, those infantry charges only resulted in the ever-growing list of casualties. General Yawgway had guessed correctly about his enemy's tactics and used that to stifle their advance. It would only be days into the offensive that the Republicans, with their dwindling supplies and morale, would have to go on the defensive. Indeed, on the day after the Republican Air Force put Anne in an appearance, Modesto ordered the army of the Ebro to halt and hold what they had captured. Basically, land and woods that meant nothing. And for this, he had already lost some 12,000 men. As the Republicans tried to dig trenches, they found that the hard, rock-strewn ground would not yield. So they piled rocks up for protection. But as the enemy's bombs rained down, those rocks became the equivalent of shrapnel. What should have been obvious to Prime Minister Negrin was that his Battle of the Ebro was over, in regards to any further territory that could be gained. His men were hungry, thirsty, tired, and running low on supplies. And these men of the Center Army were the best the Republic had. Better to pull them back, call it a victory, and seek international support. But that's not what Negrin nor Modesto, much less Lister, and the other Soviet officers wanted to do. For the Spaniards, at least, the war had become personal. As for the Soviets, they would sacrifice almost any amount of men so as to not have to report a defeat back to Stalin. Now that the Republicans were on the defensive, yet still on the western side of the river, Franco became obsessed with pushing them back, but better still, to destroy them where they were. As such, the first of what would become six counterattacks was launched on August 6th. This was the area of Phaon on the northern end of the Republican Bulge. The men of the Republican 42nd Division held as best they could, but there was no answer to the 40 sorties flown by the Condor Legion, which dropped 50 tons of bombs on them. By August 10th, the 42nd was broken in spirit and heavy with casualties. They recrossed the Ebro before the day was out. With this achieved, Franco had his commanders focus on the area of Sierra Pendols, located 7 kilometers or 4.3 miles southeast of Gantesa. Here, the Republican 11th Division, was about to be overwhelmed as Franco's reinforcements, some seven divisions, had moved into the area. However, the men of the 11th held the high ground, and they were able to mete out severe punishment to their attackers as they climbed up the heights. The Condor Legion tried to assist, but many of them were tasked with cutting off the escape route of the 11th, the pontoon bridges to their east. Franco lost many men in this battle, but wasn't phased and kept sending in more. Still, the men of the 11th held the heights, and Negrin's government put out the message that this was due to their fanatic, anti-fascist beliefs. However, truth be told, it came down to Modesto and Lister putting out the order that if any man loses an inch of ground, he will be shot. Two days later, on August 13th, as the men fought on the ground, the skies above them were equally contested. Three squadrons of Messerschmitts and some Fiats engaged Chattos and Subramoscas. The latter had larger guns and more powerful engines than previous generations. Still, as the Condor Legion had almost double the number of planes involved in the engagements, their side took down more than they lost but an additional nail in the 11th Division's coffin was the German Heinkel 111s and JU-52s, who slipped past the Republican air defenses to continue to take out the constantly rebuilt bridges. But here again, the Germans were trying out new aerial tactics that would serve them well in the Battle of Britain. As the Soviet and Republican pilots flew in the Standard V formation, the Germans were flying in groups of pairs, the lead plane attacking, while the second watched his back. The Republican pilots were unsure of how to deal with this more surgical attack, and in more than a few occasions, overcompensated and ran into each other or ended up shooting down a comrade. Yet the Germans still had things to learn when it came to bombing. Despite hundreds of sorties, the pontoon bridges behind the 11th were rebuilt each night, The Germans were unable to chase away or kill enough engineers and their workers, and the crossings were thrown up again each time more quickly as the men became proficient in their work. So again Franco used Mother Nature and had the dams above the pontoon bridges here, along the Segre, opened up. This was on August 18th, and the Republican engineers knew from one glance that there would be no work this night or for the next few nights, as they would have to wait for the waters to subside. All they could do was hope the Nationalists would not choose this moment to attack their trapped comrades on the western side. But that's exactly what happened the next day, August 19th. Some six divisions, along with a cavalry brigade, came upon the Ebro Bridgehead, Again, the 88 millimeter guns of the Condor Legion were tasked with supporting the charging infantry, while their Stukas were given the responsibility of taking out the enemy's 13 artillery batteries nearest Gadessa. This allowed the HE-111s to stay focused on the pontoon bridges. No sense in allowing the Republicans, Franco hoped to destroy to a man, any additional help. But this air attack on the crossings was also bait to draw out any remaining Republican fighters, so they too could be destroyed to the last. With the first two Republican sections pushed back, Franco then had Yagüe focus on the enemy at Villaba del Arcs, about five miles or eight kilometers north of Gandesa, during the third week of August. Yet, in a twist of tactics, Leaflet's were dropped first, urging those below to surrender. But hard upon the falling papers, ordinance followed. The Republican troops at Villalba del Arx were veterans and in good defensive positions. They handled the counterattacks as they came on the next five days. Both sides were losing men, but it would be true enough to say that the commanders of both sides cared little and continued throwing men into the fray. On August 26th, in a move that was somehow supposed to inspire the Republican troops, native and foreign, Lieutenant Colonel Modesto was promoted to full colonel. As he was the first officer of the militia to achieve this rank, this was impressive, but it did little to improve the situation on the ground, in the air, or along the Ebro. To show how fluid battles can be, including the interpreting of such things, near the end of August, Franco himself came to Yagwe's headquarters to view the various battlefields through his binoculars. Directly in front of him was the now-secure Gandesa. Turning to his aide, he summed up the satisfying results of, to him, the unexpected Republican attack by saying, I have the best of the Red Army trapped. However, looking at his own maps, Mussolini, seeing roughly the same situation, told Ciano, I predict the defeat of Franco. That man either does not know how to make war or doesn't want to. Il Duce's tactical capacity would not improve in the future. On the last day of August, the Nationalists launched another counterattack. This one would travel up the road that exited Gandesa to the northwest. Their immediate goal was Corbera, some 7 kilometers or 4.3 miles in that direction. By now, Garcia Lino's corps, made up of 8 divisions, 300 guns, 500 aircraft, and 100 tanks, had arrived at its jump-off point. It would be their job to clear the road from Gandesa to Corbera thus pushing back the center of the Republican bulge, that much closer to the Ebro. But standing in their way was the 35th Division, parts of the 11th Division, and the 43rd Division. The men knew what was coming, so tied pieces of wood around their necks, in order to have something to bite on when the shelling started. However, these bits of wood could not protect the men from the bombs above. The Nationalists pushed forward behind their artillery and bombing attacks. Another big push towards Corbera came on September 3rd, one year to the day before the outbreak of another general European war. With their 300 guns and German and Italian bombing allies, Corbera was taken the next day. The Republican salient was beginning to shrink. With their defensive line crumbling fast, Colonel Modesto threw in his only reserve, the 35th Division. Yes, it was already engaged, but it was all the colonel had to plug up the gaps. And, of course, the desperate order following this move, which guaranteed the death of so many of these men, was not a single position must be lost If the enemy takes one, there must be a rapid counterattack and as much fighting as necessary, but always making sure that it remains in Republican hands, not one meter of ground to the enemy. But again, this daring order, given from far behind the lines, did not create tanks or large guns, nor did it counter the superiority of guns and planes held by the enemy, but it made for great copy. The world was impressed with Modesto's courage. Now that they had the momentum, Franco continued to order counter-attacks, and his men began to regain what had been lost with the surprise Republican attack. Within a span of one week, from September 19th to the 26th, the area between Gandesa and the heights of the Sierra de Cavals, due east of gandesa by some... 10 kilometers, or 6.2 miles, was recaptured. This was a considerable chunk of land, given that, since the counterattacks had started, normally only a kilometer or two retaken could count as a success. From there, the Nationalists continued to push east. On October 2nd, the Nationalists reached La Venta de Composines, about halfway from Gandessa and the Ebro. Of course, it would have helped Modesto tremendously if either, or both, of the commanders to his right or left flank had launched a counterattack of their own to draw away enemy units from the center. But they did not. Was it those officers looking down on a newly promoted militia officer, or simply that they did not want to become Franco's next target? Either way, the two flanks strove to only hold their own. Now, unlike the Republicans, or rather their Soviet advisers slash officers, Yagwe did not wait for his two flanks to catch up before pushing harder in the center. But now that the middle area was giving way, he focused his attention to the southeast of Gandessa. In mid-October, launching a night attack, thus removing their normal artillery bombardment, Yagoy's men captured. Point Six Six Six, some ten kilometers or six point two miles southeast of his main city. This opened the way to the Sierra de Pandos, a limestone mountain chain. If this could be reached and taken, then there was little to stop the nationalists from pushing the enemy all the way back to the river. The nationalist counterattacks to the northeast east and southeast of Candessa, continued, and all met with success. To be sure, both sides lost thousands of men, but the Republicans were losing more, and more to the point, what relatively few weapons they had were being left behind. By the 113th day of the Battle of the Ebro, the Republicans held very little of what they had at the apex of their attack. Just a sliver of land in the north of their former salient, around Flix. The officers all conferred, and despite Nigrin's arguments, decided it was time to recross the Abro. Of course, by now, there were much fewer men crossing back to the east than had crossed to the west. On the morning of November 16th, the battle for the last three weeks, had become nothing more than the Nationalists walking forward and the Republicans walking backward. Under the cover of a heavy river mist, the men of the 35th Division, which were to only serve in a reserve capacity before it was chewed up along with the rest, crossed the Ebro at 4.30 a.m. The Battle of the Ebro River, Prime Minister Negrin's master plan to bring Franco to the negotiating table, had failed, utterly. And for his pains, the Republic had lost some 75,000 men, of which 30,000 were now dead. The Nationalists had lost 60,000 men, but all that mattered was that the battle lines had gone right back to where they were in July. Catalonia lay prostrate before Franco. And what's more, many of the remaining Republic's weapons... Have been left back with their slain soldiers. Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast. Episode 119, The House Always Wins. Last time, Prime Minister Negrin's delusional Catalonian offensive, which would force Franco to seek a mutual resolution, failed utterly. More besides, the Republican army was now some 70,000 fewer in number, many of which had been the best they had. Now it was time for the blame game. The non-communist officers blamed Negrin and his communist backers They, in turn, castigated General Rojo and the general staff. But all this was the equivalent of the people of the Titanic arguing about the meaning of life. Catalonia was now exposed. The forces around Madrid had done nothing to help, and couldn't help now. What was plain by now was that, as the Germans had been trying out varying tactics, the use of their 88mm guns for more than just anti-aircraft use, the flying formations with groups of pairs for dogfights, and their overall improvement in the bombing and strafing techniques, the communist military advisors of the Republic had basically been fighting the same way since the beginning of the war. This would bode ill for them in the summer of 1941. As the Ebro Front collapsed, the victorious press releases, nevertheless, flowed from the Negrin government. As far as the world was concerned, and this included President Azania, Franco's forces were being driven back in the late summer of thirty-eight. Surely talks would emerge from this reversal of fortune for the nationalist leader. During this same time, though he knew the truth, Negrin grabbed more power for himself within the Republican government. Calling together his Council of Ministers in early August, the Prime Minister presented his aims to them. One, he wanted to execute 58 people found guilty of smuggling. He wanted to bring the war industries of Catalonia under the Secretary of Armaments. He wanted to set up a special court to try others accused of smuggling and he wanted to militarize emergency tribunals. This all meant that if more of Spain's territory and infrastructure came under government control, it would really mean it would come under communist control, as they were the main supporters of the Prime Minister. Though most within the cabinet went along with Negrin's wishes, two ministers, Manuel de Erujo and Jaminé Aguiarder, strongly and openly protested. These two men used this moment to criticize the government's SIM or secret police. Their overall objection was that if Negrin got his way, there would be little difference between himself and Franco. And in truth, that was correct. But as Negrin was a civilian, he saw himself as the savior of Spain. The measures were passed Of course, it was only a matter of time before these alterations to the government were made known public by the press. The censorship department did everything it could to shush the matter, but too many people knew of it for that to be possible. Even President Azania read of the changes for the first time in the newspapers. The communists, in an attempt at damage control, blamed the very two ministers who spoke out against Negrin's measures. After all, Joseph Goebbels would go on to say, A lie told once remains a lie, but a lie told a thousand times becomes the truth. And the Communists had been lying to the Spanish people since late in 1936. Days later, the two ministers resigned, and those 58 people were executed. President Azania would write in his diary, Yesterday, they shot 58 people. The minister sent me details. It's horrible. I feel indignation about the whole affair. Eight days after, I gave a speech on pity and forgiveness. They kill 58. Without telling me anything, nor seeking my opinion. I only found out from the press after the deed was done. As the Battle of Ebro was still unfolding, but the truth was only known to a few, there was now a political crisis within the Republican government. Negrin, who certainly did not have the corner on intrigue, had rumors started that there were those seeking to replace him and that a new government would begin capitulation talks with Franco. Right on cue, the Communists made public their support for the now supposedly embattled Negrin. Unfortunately, this support of the Communists came in the form of a military parade through Barcelona. These men and their tanks and planes were desperately needed along the Ebro. However, none of their commanders knew of the worsening situation to their west, as Negrin and Modesto had kept it quiet. By the time some of the truth was known in late September, the fighting along the Ebro was beyond hope. But so, too, was Negrin's plans of international support, as the rest of the world was focused on the talks that would result in the Munich Agreement. Yes, the war had been averted, but only for a short time. But it had been enough to cancel out any real help for Republican Spain. Negrin then, in attempting to secure his dominance, announced that he was tired. And it was time for him to step aside. He suggested that Companies take over. But Companies hated Negrin and had been attacking his direction of the war for some time. But he didn't want to be the one standing there when Madrid fell. No, he said, only Negrin could run the government. Besides, Companies added, in a backhanded slight, that the current Prime Minister was the only one with strong enough ties to the Communists to keep the weapons coming in, and this was during the Battle of the Ebro. Negrin humbly agreed to stay at his post and filled the two cabinet posts. He then went to a medical conference in Zurich, but really to begin talks with whatever Germans could get word to Hitler and Franco. The man who had declared, there is only one nation, Spain, was hoping to divide the country so he could keep his half and his power. Meanwhile, his communist supporters continued to attack the character of anyone who wanted to end the war without a complete victory. Whether Negrin realized it or not, the Munich Agreement had changed the entire game board. One, it showed that London and Paris were willing to sacrifice much of other people's property to keep Europe's strong men happy and at peace. And two, because, as Chamberlain put it, the Munich represented peace in our time, there would be no wider war in which to fold the Spanish conflict. No goods and materials would be coming from Madrid's allies, who were all now, Only beginning to stand up to the fascists, which meant hoarding their own weapons. But worst of all for Madrid, Stalin now clearly saw the writing on the wall. Hitler and Mussolini were free to harass anyone, and the two great republics would do nothing about it. And Russia was certainly on that list of anyone. It was time for Moscow to rebuild a relationship with Berlin, and that meant a change in Moscow's current relationship with Spain's Republicans. And yet, there was one bright glimmer for Spain. The French were getting tired of London dominating their foreign policy. But the truth was, Chamberlain's thinking along the lines of France's political and moral decay matched the fascists. Still, there were those French officers who wanted to cross the Pyrenees and help the Republic, but their superiors of the French General Staff believed it was too late for that. War was coming again to Europe, and France could not deal with a two-front war. During the summer of 1938, just before the Battle of the Ebro got underway, the British, still dominating the Non-Intervention Committee, continued to search for ways to either end the war or just to make sure that only Spaniards fought and died. Thus it was proposed that each side in the conflict expel its foreign fighters. Of course, Franco could never go for that, as his main advantage was what Germany and Italy brought to him. So he sought the advice of Rome and Berlin, and they both counseled the same thing. Agree to the provision, how could he not, but delay its implementation. It would take a while before the British figured out what Franco was doing. For now, the Cadillo agreed to review the proposal. He would be willing to accept belligerent status, thus getting acknowledgement from the wider world, and in the meantime would implement a partial withdrawal of foreigners. This satisfied the British, who could say they were doing something, but besides, they, like everyone else, was now readying for a general war. The only one who did not benefit from this was Nagrin, because he, a lot more easily than Franco, agreed to the withdrawal. He gave a speech to the League of Nations on September 21st, declaring it so, which confused many. Did Republican Spain really believe it could continue resisting the nationalists without its foreign fighters? If that were the case, then they were about to be rudely awakened from the stream. But then Mussolini, who enjoyed being the bad boy of Europe and probably competing with Hitler, offered Franco even more troops. At the moment, there were some 40,000 Italian soldiers in Spain. Franco turned this down. He had to, on the face of it. Instead, he asked that the best fighters stay in country to form one overstrength division, and in lieu of the men leaving, would accept additional guns and planes, which he valued more than the Italian fighters. Rome agreed to this. The first returning Italian troops landed in Naples on October twentieth. It must be said that the men of the international brigades leaving Spain were not necessarily the sacrifice it may have appeared to be. Their numbers had been dwindling already through death, capture, and simple departure. On numerous occasions, these men had clashed with their Soviet advisers and realized that Stalin's men, if given enough time, would get them all killed without a clear victory over Franco. By the time Negrin had made his announcement, there were only some 7,000 foreigners left. Overall, there had been 9,934 of them to die, 7,686 missing, and all told, some 37,000 wounded. Only later would Negrin's government discover the other 400 foreigners in Franco's various prisons. When Negrin returned from the medical conference in Zurich, He summoned the Cortes on September 30th. He spoke of the war along the Ebro, but of course left out that it was falling apart, fast. He also put out the word that he was willing to talk to the Nationalists and would use as a basis for that discussion his 13 points. Of course, this meant nothing as Franco was playing for the whole board, which somehow Nagrin still did not grasp. During a subsequent meeting, Negrin threatened to resign, which caused enough people to rally to him, even if that was not their true desire, to guarantee that he would have his way in the pursuit of this war. As for the war, it was apparent to all that the Battle of Catalonia would soon begin. It was also apparent that this would probably be the last battle of the war. Either the Republic held their own, which would only allow them to continue fighting, or the Nationalists would win. But even if Negrin lied to others, and there was a fair amount of lying and simply not taking questions, he could not ignore the information brought to him in the fall of 1938. The Republicans' industrial production was only one-tenth of what it had been in 1936. There were far fewer raw materials than before and many in Barcelona did not have electricity. Soap and other basic products had long since disappeared. The people were despondent, hopeless, and just wanted this to end, one way or the other. As for Negrin, he, besides keeping up with his womanizing until the end, he bragged about getting bored every ten days with any current lover, got on with the war. First, the government sent out mobilization decrees. To be sure, in what the Republic still held of Spain, they had some 250,000 men. What they didn't have were rifles, only 40,000, tanks, no more than 40, artillery pieces, about a 100, and airplanes, 106. When the men, very young and very old, showed up for training, Many went home after it was clear they weren't to be given any weapons. Some of them were shot for leaving, but most were able to escape and spread the word of the Republic's hopelessness. After the collapse of the Battle of the Ebro, Prime Minister Negrin refused to see anyone other than his communist supporters. And what was left of Republican Spain would find out later He had been working on plans for a new federal structure. What was needed, the only chance free Spain had to win this war, was through a system where there would be less freedom, but the resources of the state could be harnessed more efficiently. Only a united national front would have the strength to defeat Franco. To his thinking, to depend on the Communist Party is unfavorable, from the international standpoint. The existing Republican parties have no future. The Popular Front does not have a common discipline and is torn apart by inter-party struggle. What is needed, therefore, is an organization that would unify all that is best in all of the parties and organizations and would represent a fundamental support of the government. There is no returning to the old parliamentarianism. In other words, they had to fight fire with fire, for this new government was to be a politically left version of Franco's nationalists, with, of course, Negrin still at the top. As 19th century British politician Lord Acton wrote, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. When December 1938 opened up, the battle lines along the Ebro, and Segre Rivers were back to where they were from July. Of course, now both sides felt that the entire affair was coming to a close. Still, the Republican general staff had its duty and prepared for diversionary attacks in other locations, not that they expected any real success. As for Negrin, he was losing what little non-communist support he had even to the point of being accused, in the open, of being an agent of the communists. To combat this, Negrin told a new representative from Britain, R.C. Shrine-Stevenson, that communism would never work in Spain. As for the war early on, the Spanish communists were the only ones who had their act together enough to hold back the nationalist-attempted coup d'etat. Furthermore, only the USSR would openly help Republican Spain. It was simply a question of needs must. However, Stevenson was told to tell Lord Halifax, the Foreign Secretary, that if London could see their way to give him enough rifles and large guns to fight Franco, without Communist help, that the Communist Party in Spain could be crushed in a week. But at the time, the British were too worried about the home front for the coming war. More besides, reinforcing Gibraltar if and when Franco won. In early January 1939, Negrin tried out the same request with the French, asking for 100,000 rifles and 2,000 machine guns. But not only did he not even get a response, but French Foreign Minister Georges Bonnet went so far as to stop the last shipment of guns from Soviet Russia over the French border. As Negrin had expected, no less, the first diversionary attack was launched on December 8th with an assault towards Seville. The Republican force moved out from Cordoba, south of Madrid, and were told to make more noise than engage the enemy. To increase the chance that Franco's eyes would turn to the south... Another attack, an amphibious one, was to be launched at Motril along the southern coast. Time and again, Franco had shown zero tolerance for any of his territory to be lost to the Republicans. Perhaps this would postpone the attack coming at the Far East. However, the second attack was delayed for logistical reasons, and by the time it was underway, the Nationalists had already started their assault and had crossed the Ebro. Franco's final push for Barcelona, across the Ebro, was to have begun on December 10th, but then the rains came and reduced visibility for his German and Italian pilots, and this time he wanted everything to be perfect. So Franco waited out the rains, while his 340,000 men 300 tanks, 500 aircraft, and 1,400 guns, all of which were to end this war, waited as well. By this time, U.S. President Roosevelt admitted to the press that the arms embargo against Spain may have been a grave mistake. Across the Atlantic, although London proper had not changed its mind, Men like Churchill and Anthony Eden were now considering their European maps with Franco in charge of Spain. This would leave too few republics on the mainland, and as the war was coming, there would soon be fewer still. But which ones would fall? This led to many rushed and hushed attempted negotiations with Franco. But as the British had not changed their minds... El Cadillo felt safe in shutting down all such talks. He still held out for an exchange of belligerent status for removing his foreigners. After all, it was because of the Condor Legion that he was in such a solid position. As the tension mounted over Europe, with everyone watching for what and where would be the first shot in a new war, Each country considered its options and potential rivals and allies. Counterintuitively, this was not as clear-cut as it should have been. Republican Spain was dead. It was just a matter of going through the motions. That is, unless France jumped in. After all, they were not looking forward to the day of having ultra-right-wing strongmen on their two borders. But... Paris was brought up short, when Chiano, in his formal role as foreign minister, told London, If the French move, it will be the end of non-intervention. We will send regular divisions. That is to say, we will make war on France, on Spanish soil. This was enough to motivate Lord Halifax. He told Paris that if Spain became the spark of a new war between the fascists and France, Britain would not assist the beleaguered country. That is, France, not Spain. But truth be told, Paris was in no position to help Nagrin, And besides, it was too late anyways. Sure, many Frenchmen were humiliated over the betrayal and sacrifice of Czechoslovakia. But their government was not willing to do anything to speed up the most assuredly coming European war.